Welcome everyone and thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, again, my name is Richard Mollett with the Long-Term Care Community Coalition. Uh, today we're going to be talking about some of the new uh, proposed changes to the nursing home standards that have been uh, proposed by the Trump administration as part of its burden reduction for uh, business in the United States. This is something we've been uh, waiting for for a long time and it was just announced about a month ago so we are going to be reviewing it today talking about some of the most uh, significant issues that we've seen in regard to nursing home care and quality of life before we get started though a few housekeeping um, points one this this program is recorded it's going to be available on both our youtube channel and we are in the process of starting a, um, uh, which we're also having a, of course I forgot the word, sorry folks, a um, uh, podcast, sorry, <laughs> tells you how, how long I've been around. Uh, so we're going to have, we have a podcast channel on our website and we're going to be hooking that up with the you know, Spotify and with iTunes and Google, I think it's Google Play. So that's coming down the road, but right now all of these are, we're making them available as podcasts as well. And in addition, this year we're going to be launching a separate podcast that'll be um, about a half hour in length, and that's going to focus on issues that we've identified or others have pointed out to us as important to resident care. Without further ado, I want to get started. Um, a little bit about today's program. I'm joined today by Dara Valenajad, who is a policy attorney at the Long-Term Care Community Coalition and the Center for Medicare Advocacy. You can see his picture up there. He's the one with the full head of hair. Um, and so Dara has joined us today. So it's not just going to be me. Uh, the two of us will be talking about some of these provisions. And Dara and I have been working on the comments that we will be submitting to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services about these proposed changes to the nursing home safety standards. Uh, so here's an outline of today's program. We're going to start off with the background on the law and the standards. We quite often do this in our programs, but today I um, thought it was particularly important because I want to give a context for um, how we've gotten to where we are and where um, we're going, what the potential is in terms of these proposed changes to the nursing home requirements. Then Dara and I will be talking about the uh, requirements that we think are most important in terms of resident care, quality of life, and dignity. And each one of these, to make it useful, I hope, for people, is that we're going to talk about what the current standard is, what the proposed changes are from the Trump administration, and what our concerns are about those changes. I'm going to leave you with some resident-centered policy advocacy that we're doing that we strongly urge others um, to do as well, whether you're an individual or representing an organization, and then we'll have some time for Q&A. Uh, before we get started, I just want to say that this is really the first and something I think will be ongoing and will be of um, uh, you know, the subject of future programs as well, and as well as other alerts and advocacy tools that we'll be issuing. This is, as far as I'm concerned, you know, the biggest crisis in a way for nursing home residents and those who um, love them and help them. Uh, and certainly in my 
career, but I would say since 1987 when the reform law, nursing home reform law came into being. Um, this is uh, some really serious things going on. We're going to focus on the regulatory or proposed regulatory changes today, but there are other things going on in terms of enforcement and in terms of oversight that are uh, also very serious, very, very concerning for us as consumer advocates. So a little bit about the law and the regulations, and some of you have seen uh, this slide before, uh, but in essence, the vast majority of nursing homes are licensed to participate in Medicaid and or Medicare. And I say participate because that's what that's how the government views it, is that if you are participating in Medicaid or Medicare, uh, meaning that you are part of those programs, you are taking in uh, residents or, or patients who are on Medicaid or Medicare, you are agreeing to meet all of the standards that come under the 1987 Nursing Home Reform Law, as well as any other federal law, including the Affordable Care Act, uh, what's called um, by many Obamacare, which also implemented some important protections for nursing home residents. Now, states can have additional protections uh, in addition to the federal law, but can't have any less protections. So, for instance, many states, although not our state of New York, have minimum staffing requirements for their nursing homes. They have to have a certain number of staff, CNAs, LPNs, RNAs, per resident per day. It's about 35 states, if I remember correctly. Um, so they can have that in addition to the federal standards, which really don't have a um, numerical requirement for entire for all care staff. Um, but you cannot have any less. So everything we talk about, unless I specify, is a federal requirement. Everything on our website is a federal requirement because what we're talking about today, and this is why these potential changes are so important is that everything that affects a resident, everything that goes on in terms of his or her care, the quality of life, the dignity with which he or she can expect to be treated or has a right to be treated, all really comes from the federal uh, law and the federal regulations. Lastly, these protections are for every single resident in the facility, so it doesn't matter if your care is paid for by Medicare paid for by Medicaid, whether you private pay, insurance, etc. All the rights go to everyone. Um, when a facility agrees to participate in Medicare or, and or Medicaid, if they're participating in one of those programs, everyone in their facility has the right and, and the facility is expected to perform uh, in accordance with those standards for every single individual in the facility. A little bit about the nursing home reform law. It re this is the 1987 reform law, also known as over 87. It requires that every single resident in the facility is provided the care and quality of life services that are sufficient to attain and maintain his or her highest practicable physical, emotional, and psychosocial well-being. Uh, practicable can be a is kind of a mouthful. It does not mean practical in terms of what the facility wants uh, in regard to maybe administrative salary or in regard to profits or, or or anything else. It is highest practicable based upon the needs of the individual resident. So when a facility takes in a resident, that facility 
has made a, an assessment or a judgment of the resident based upon the information provided to it, and it is that facility's responsibility to provide care and services that are sufficient to ensure that that resident can achieve what he or she is capable of doing, the best he or she is capable of doing in terms of mobility, in terms of um, emotional um, and social comfort and access to appropriate services and access to appropriate uh, activities, etc. So what that means in essence is that if, I, um, if I'm a resident, say in my 90s, and I like to do Bible study or I like to um, do crossword puzzles, bingo should not be the only uh, activity that is available to me. It's not, the, all these rules are not driven by the facility. It's not saying, okay, we're expecting you to do bingo and have apples and oranges and a sandwich twice a day, etc. It's driven by the resident. What does the resident need? What are the resident's desires? It doesn't mean that if I want to have um, a sirloin steak and lobster for dinner every night that the facility has to do that. But it does mean that it has to reasonably accommodate um, my psychosocial needs, my emotional needs, my cultural needs, etc. So moving forward, again, as I've, as I've been saying, the emphasis is on individualized patient-centered care. And that was uh, really a response to some pretty serious problems that we were seeing, some, some big scandals that came out in the late 70s and early 80s that led to uh, some federal studies and led to the, the nursing home reform law. The law lays out some specific resident rights. We talk about this uh, in many of our other programs, and we'll just highlight a couple of them in, in a forthcoming slide. But it really goes to, again, resident-centered care, meeting the needs of the resident, meeting the resident where he or she exists. So again, it's not a facility just making tube socks or making uh, tacos. It's a place where people are living and getting care and it's expected that the care and the quality of life services will be tailored to the individual. So a few of the highlights, um, again, care and services, they have to be, be tailored to the individual. And as I note here in bold, they must be based on an individualized assessment and care plan. We have a lot of materials on our website around this. We have tools for consumers and caregivers and family members about this, but to me, the individualized assessment and care plan is, is such an important basis for, for everything that we talk about in terms of residents' rights and our expectations because everything is based on, everything is predicated on that, that comprehensive assessment and a care plan that includes input from the resident, from the resident's family or loved ones, and from the people who are providing care for the resident. A couple of, of more specific examples here. I'll just talk about one, prevention and treatment of pressure ulcers. So this is, is pretty much paraphrasing the federal requirements that based on a comprehensive assessment, the facility must ensure that each resident, quote, receives care consistent with professional standards of practice to prevent pressure ulcers and does not develop pressure ulcers unless the individual's clinical condition demonstrates that they were unavoidable. So we're, we're talking about some very specific high expectations for people. And 
I know that for a lot of families, I know people who work with families and of course the residents themselves, uh, sometimes this can be very frustrating and, and even upsetting because too often it's not the level of care that people see in their facility. And that is of course the reason why our organization exists, um, the reason why the center does so much of its work, the reason why we have the Amazon programs and why the Amazon programs work, excuse me, is so important is because knowing that these standards exist and being able to have resident-centered advocacy around it, whether it be on the individual level or on a systemic level, uh, is the only way that we can make a difference and the only way, I think, that we can achieve um, some of those expectations. So. Um, what's happening now, what ha you know, as I've said a couple of times, in 1987, the Congress passed and, and Reagan signed, President Reagan signed into law, law the nursing home reform law, uh, and that came after a number of uh, very significant scandals, and it also came after President Reagan had actually proposed almost exactly the same thing as we're now faced with today, reducing the standards that then existed for nursing home care. And the only way that was stopped is because people like us and people like you spoke out and protested and said, no, um, this, we, we don't, decreasing standards for residents would be harmful and people would die. And so there was enough of a protest that they instead, instead of reducing the standards, they called for a study. And that study actually found, I think it was Institute of Medicine, found that there needed to be stronger standards, not weaker standards. And those of you who may have had relatives or um, worked in nursing, in the nursing home industry in the late 70s or early 80s, I remember visiting my great-grandmother at that time, and the nursing home was, was really crummy. I mean, it smelled bad. There were no activities at all. She, um, she was very isolated. She was strapped into a wheelchair. So things really have improved in, in some significant ways. But we um, we need to do what they did in 1984, 85, 86, is to stand up, this is our, our position, to stand up and stop a decimation of, um, of these important standards. So the law passed in 87. In 1991, the regulations came out. So the regulations really spell out um, how the law is to be implemented. What does it mean? to have you know, the, the highest practicable care, highest practicable being, excuse me. Well, it means, in the last example I just mentioned, that if unless a pressure ulcer is absolutely unavoidable, the resident has the right, and, and we are paying for and have a right to expect that they will receive the care and the services, the repositioning as necessary, the um, bandaging or the bedding as necessary to ensure that a pressure ulcer is avoided and if something should happen, that care is, and treatment is given as quickly and as effectively as possible. In 2010, that's when the Affordable Care Act, so-called Obamacare, passed. And that included um, some important provisions that had existed for many years to improve care uh, and to improve rights and um, uh, address some of the uh, abuse problems that were going on or that have been identified over the years among the elderly. So they, the Affordable Care Act included provisions of the Elder Justice, Justice Act, excuse me, and the Nursing Home Transparency Act, both of which existed before, but they were incorporated in the ACA. Uh, 
And then in 2016, for the first time in 25 years since 1991, the federal nursing home standards were revised and essentially to reflect current understanding of care, uh, standards of care, what it means to live with dignity and the rights of people who are aging uh, and people who, are, who have disabilities and people who are both who are aging and with disabilities and who compromise, I would say, the majority of nursing home residents in our country. So uh, things changed over the years. And over the years, from 1991 through 2016, CMS issued um, memos. Sometimes they made changes to the guidance, uh, which is what informs the regulations. It what explains the regulations is what's called interpretive guidance. Um, but this really, I think, uh, in 2016, they kind of put that all together and they updated the whole thing. There were not significant changes. The basic requirements on the reform law did not change. Um, there were a couple of things that were um, a little bit more substantial, that we'll, some of which we'll talk about today, like the Quality Assurance and Performance Improvement Quality Program. Um, that didn't exist precisely in the past. But really, it all came to the same thing. It's like, how are we meeting those goals that were identified, the, the expectations that were identified in 1987, the highest practicable for each resident, well, it wasn't happening for too many people. So how do we get there again? How do we make sure that facilities are taking steps to really implement that in the lives of their residents? And then we have in 2017, uh, leading up to the present at the Trump administration, uh, and again, and not again, but we're not a partisan organization. We're neither Democrat nor Republican. Uh, but uh, this is, you know, what is coming out of the Trump administration. As many of you, I'm sure, are aware, they've been making changes and proposing changes to uh, environmental issues, and including coal and and gas efficiency, et cetera. Well, here, just last, about a month ago, they um, proposed sweeping changes to the nursing home standards. Again, the foundation of everything, of all care in our country in nursing homes, um, that they propose sweeping changes, and these changes really have the goal of reducing what they are calling as so-called burdens. And the, the nursing home industry refers to them as regulatory burdens, and the administration has taken on that language and said, oh, we're going to reduce these burdens. So without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Dara. Dara, if you can... Uh, unmute yourself by pressing star six, please, and then um, I will move the... Um... Richard, can you hear great. me? Yes, I can. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you, Richard. Um, so current regulations require facilities to um, ensure that residents remain informed of the name, specialty, and contact information of um, the physician and primary care professionals responsible for their care. CMS is now proposing to revise that regulation to remove or remain informed. So instead, CMS is proposing to specify that residents should be informed of only their primary care physician's information at admission when there's a change and upon request. Uh, CMS notes that it could see how the current regulation um, has the potential to substantially burden facilities uh, with maintaining an exhaustive list of professionals for each resident. Uh, unfortunately, CMS is shifting the burden onto residents and families here. Uh, facilities voluntarily take responsibility for the care of their residents, as Richard noted, by participating in the Medicare and Medicaid programs. 
Part of this responsibility must necessarily include remaining informed about a resident's primary care professionals, which affects the resident's care inside the facility and outside the facility upon transfer or discharge. It is even more critical for facilities to remain informed of a resident's primary care professionals, given that all too many residents are unable to maintain a list of care professionals due to illness or disease. CMS provides no reasoning as to how rolling back this requirement and placing the burden of coordinating care on residents would actually improve resident care. Their focus was just on reducing provider burden. Next slide, please. So here are grievances. Um, in the 2016 final rule, CMS took steps to expand the grievance process by requiring facilities to establish policies that ensure residents' uh, grievances were quickly resolved. The final rule required facilities to designate a staff member to serve as the grievance officer, and that officer is charged with overseeing the grievance process. In the proposed rule, CMS is proposing to roll back the grievance process. Most notably, CMS is proposing to create a distinction between so-called feedback or complaints and grievances. The proposal notes that grievances include those related to care and treatment that has or has not been provided and uh, the behavior of staff and other residents as well as other concerns that differ from general feedback. The proposal notes that feedback or complaints stem from general issues that can typically be resolved by staff present at the time that the concern is raised, while grievances require a more formal investigation. CMS is leaving it up to the facility to determine whether a comment is a grievance or just feedback or complaint. CMS states that it expects feedback to rise to the level of a grievance if staff fail to address the problem repeatedly or the same so-called feedback is raised by multiple residents. CMS highlights that residents and their representatives can always reach out to ombudsmen, state survey agencies, and quality improvement organizations if they are being ignored. CMS also proposes to remove the specific duties of the grievance officer in order to provide the, the officer greater flexibility. And so these duties include currently receiving and tracking grievances to their conclusion, leading any necessary investigations by the facility, maintaining the confidentiality of all information associated with grievances, issuing written grievance decisions to the resident, and coordinating with state and federal agencies as necessary in light of specific allegations. CMS is further proposing to roll back the content of grievance decisions to only include uh, pertinent information. So that would include summary of the findings and corrective action. Uh, lastly, CMS wants to require facilities to maintain evidence demonstrating uh, the results of all grievances for 18 months instead of the current requirement of three years. CMS's justification for all these changes center on the fact that the industry stakeholders have indicated that the expansion of the requirements for a grievance process is overly burdensome and costly. From our perspective, the grievance requirements are one of the most important additions promulgated in the 2016 final rule and should not be eliminated or watered down under the pretense of reducing provider burden. CMS's decision to create an unnecessary distinction between so-called feedback or complaints and grievances is dangerous because it increases the chances of concerns not being appropriately addressed. First, nursing homes are too often understaffed 
and may not be able to appropriately respond to a resident's feedback or complaint at the time it is raised. A June 2019 Health Affairs study found that nursing homes generally had large daily staffing fluctuations, low weekend staffing, and daily staffing levels often below the expectations of CMS. Given the known concerns about understaffing, it is highly inappropriate for CMS to assume that staff have the time to both address complaints as they arise and provide direct care to residents. Second, recent federal reports highlight how understaffing may impact residents under the proposed rollback. The July 2019 Government Accountability Organization report found that the number of abuse citations have more than doubled between 2013 and 2017. A GAO-led stakeholder meeting on resident abuse identified insufficient staffing, staff training, and staff screening as key risk factors for resident abuse. Uh, the stakeholders noted that staffing issues are not just risk factors for staff as perpetrators of abuse, but they can also limit a staff member's ability to identify and report abuse. A June 2019 report by the Office of Inspector General likewise found that one in five Medicare claims for nursing home residents who received hospital emergency room services in 2016 indicated potential abuse or neglect. The, o the Office of Inspector General's report found that nursing homes failed to report 84% of the potential abuse and neglect citations or uh, incidents rather to state survey agencies. Given the increase in violations, such as abuse and neglect, it is again inappropriate for CMS to allow facilities to subjectively determine whether a resident's concern is just feedback or a grievance. Um, as, a, as, a, as these federal reports show, facilities may use uh, uh, this authority to bury problems or staff may not have the understanding to properly distinguish between the two. While CMS indicates that residents can still reach out to ombudsmen and state survey, state survey agencies if their concerns are not uh, being addressed, CMS is creating an unnecessary burden for residents by requiring them to go outside the facility to address problems inside the facility. Ultimately, the failure to address substandard care and other violations of residents' rights in a timely and effective manner has been well documented over the decades by government entities academic researchers, news reports, and thousands of CMS's own inspection reports. The point of the 2016 final rule was, was to respond to such failures by having a robust grievance process in place to ensure that a resident's concern is taken seriously, investigated, and addressed. Next slide, please. Thanks, Richard. Um, the 2016 final rule required facilities to send a copy of transfer and discharge notices to a representative of the Office of the State Long-Term Care Ombudsman. The final rule stated that sending these notices to the State uh, Long-Term Care Ombudsman will provide added, protect, added protection to the resident and um, to the Ombudsman program to keep informed of facility activities. In 2017, CMS rolled back the requirement in a memorandum by stating that the requirement would only apply to facility-initiated transfers and discharges. CMS explained that facilities still had to send notices in cases of emergency transfers, but that notices may be sent when practicable, uh, such as in a list of residents on a monthly basis. The proposed rule um, now wants to formalize that 2017 rollback 
by changing the federal regulations. CMS wants facilities to send transfer and discharge notices to ombudsmen only in the event of facility-initiated involuntary transfers or discharges. CMS defines involuntary transfer or discharge as one that the resident objects to, did not or originate through a resident's verbal or written request, or is not in alignment with the resident's stated goals for care and preferences. Unfortunately, CMS is also going beyond the 2017 rollback by adding that this requirement would not apply to residents who are temporarily transferred to a hospital on an emergency basis. CMS's justification for the rollback is that the proposed changes would streamline the notification uh, process. Unwanted transfers and discharges from a nursing home can be devastating for residents, affecting their physical health, safety, as well as their psychosocial well-being. In the 2017 memorandum, CMS stated that the inappropriate discharges can cause residents to be uprooted from familiar settings and impede relationships with staff, other residents, and even family members. CMS even acknowledges that in some cases, residents have become homeless or remained in the hospital for months. The 2017 memo also highlights that facility-initiated discharges continue to be one of the most frequent complaints made to ombudsman programs. CMS notes that some discharges are driven by payment concerns and others by resident behaviors um, or mental and or emotional expressions or distress. Given the documented issues with unwanted transfers and discharges, CMS's justification of streamlining the notification process does not make sense. Rollback makes it more difficult to protect residents from transfer and discharge violations, not easier. For instance, the proposed rule seems to open new avenues for avoiding the requirement altogether. First, the proposed rule would allow facilities to temporarily transfer residents to a hospital because of an emergency. A facility might determine that a resident is too difficult to deal with and simply transfer the resident to a hospital because of a so-called emergency. In this scenario, the facility would presumably not have to send a notice to the ombudsman program. Second, the proposed rule would give facilities the ability to argue that a transfer or discharge was not facility initiated because the resident did not object. A facility here might tell a resident that her Medicare or Medicaid benefits are ending and that they must pay out of pocket or leave. This was actually the story of Anita Willis, uh, who was featured in a 2017 Kaiser Health News article. In that article, Ms. Willis explained that the nursing home social worker offered her the choice of either paying about $340 a day for continued care or leaving the facility. Unable to pay the cost of the care, Ms. Wood had, Ms. Willis had no choice but to leave. Ms. Willis was recently homeless and upon discharge went from sleeping in motels to her daughter's car until she ended back in the hospital. Although she appealed the discharge, the judge told her that she had left the home voluntarily because she refused the opportunity to pay to remain there. CMS's decision to define involuntary transfer or discharge as one that the resident objects to seems to encompass situations like the one Ms. Willis experienced. Ultimately, CMS's decision to formally uh, roll back the notice requirements only makes it more difficult to protect residents. Next slide, please. Behavioral Health Services, 
Um, the current rule requires facilities to have sufficient staff who provide direct services to residents with the appropriate uh, competencies and skill sets to provide nursing and related services. The regulations also address rehabilitative services for mental disorders and intellectual disabilities. CMS believes that these requirements are duplicative of the nursing services uh, regulations. As a result, CMS is now proposing to remove the former requirements. CMS has justified the rollback by stating that it will improve clarity and ensure that our regulations are clearly um, reflecting what require from facilities. However, in the 2016 final rule, um, uh, it created the so-called duplicative language to emphasize the requirements as they relate to behavioral health services. The final rule noted that some commenters recommended that the behavioral health requirements not be contained in a separate section. CMS responded by stating, quote, in the previous requirements, the requirements related to behavioral health services were integrated throughout the requirements. However, we became aware of concerns that behavioral health services were either not always being addressed or not addressed to the extent required in long-term care facilities. We propose in our finalizing these requirements in a separate section to emphasize the importance of behavioral health, health and ensure that long-term care facilities address these issues. There is no meaningful justification now for CMS, CMS's proposed rollback. CMS has not addressed whether facilities have improved in meeting the requirements or whether or not the so-called uh, duplicative language helped in that effort or not. Next slide, please. Currently, PRN or as-needed prescriptions for antipsychotic drugs are limited to 14 days. These orders can extend beyond 14 days if the attending physician or prescribing practitioner evaluates the resident for the appropriateness of that medication. According to CMS's interpretive guidance, evaluation entails the attending physician or prescribing practitioner directly examining the resident and assessing the resident's current condition and progress to determine if the PRN antipsychotic medication is still needed. CMS is now proposing to revise that regulation so that when the attending physician or prescribing practitioner believes it is appropriate, PRN orders can be extended beyond the 14 days in accordance with the facility's policy if he or she documents the rationale in the resident's medical record and indicates the duration for the PRN order. So essentially, CMS is proposing to allow facilities to extend PRN antipsychotic drugging without a direct examination and assessment of the resident. The proposed rule makes it easier to administer an antipsychotic drug. This is dangerous and ignores decades of reports documenting the widespread abuse of these drugs. Antipsychotic drugs are indicated to treat specific clinical conditions such as schizophrenia. Less than 2% of the population have a diagnosis for a clinical condition that would even warrant the use of these drugs um, as identified by CMS when it risk adjusts for potentially appropriate uses. However, nursing homes still continue to administer antipsychotic drugs to approximately 20% of residents nationwide. Too often, nursing homes use these drugs as a way of chemically restraining residents exhibiting the behavioral symptoms of dementia. Despite the Food and Drug Administration's 
uh, black box warning against using antipsychotic drugs on elderly patients with dementia. The FDA's warning provides that the use of these drugs on elderly patients with dementia is associated with a significantly increased risk of death. The U.S. government has long acknowledged the seriousness of the crisis surrounding the inappropriate antipsychotic drugging of nursing home residents. The Inspector General for the Department of Health stated in 2011 that too many nursing homes failed to comply with federal regulations designed to prevent over-medication, giving nursing home patients antipsychotic drugs in ways that violate federal standards for unnecessary drug use. Government, taxpayers, nursing home residents, as well as their families and caregivers should be outraged and seek solutions. The IG's statement came in the wake of a report from his office which found that uh, 83% of antipsychotic drug use in nursing homes was off-label and that 88% of antipsychotic drug use was associated with the condition specified in the FDA's black box warning. In the aftermath of the Inspector General's statement and the Office of the Inspector General's uh, report, CMS launched in 2012 the National Partnership to Improve Dementia Care in Nursing Homes with the goal of reducing antipsychotic drugging rates. In October 2017, CMS announced that it had reduced antipsychotic drug use by 30% over the years of the partnership. Nevertheless, reports indicate that CMS's 30% reduction may be exaggerated. For example, a 2017 study found that the reduction in antipsychotic drug, drug use was correlated with an increase in the diagnoses of the three excluded conditions. The researchers noted that since the launch of the partnership, nationally reported rates of these diagnoses increased by 12% in nursing homes, and as much as 20% of the reduction could be explained by increased reporting of the exclusionary diagnoses rather than a true reduction in medication use. Likewise, a 2018 study found that the overall decline in the use of antipsychotic drugs among residents has been met by an increase in the use of mood stabilizers. The study indicated that rather than increasing the use of non-pharmacological treatments, prescribers may have shifted prescribing from antipsychotics to mood stabilizers even though mood stabilizers have less evidence of benefit for the behavioral and psychological um, symptoms of dementia. As these reports indicate, inappropriate antipsychotic drug use continues to be a widespread and ongoing problem in nursing homes throughout the country. One of CMS's justifications for rolling back this resident protection um, is that it believes there should, be a, uh, there should be uniformity in the requirements for psychotropic drugs. Under the current regulations, only PRN antipsychotic prescriptions require an evaluation before extending use. CMS states in the proposed rule that it believes having the same requirements for all psychotropic drugs will simplify the survey process and reduce improper deficiency citations. However, CMS previously placed an 18-month moratorium on the full enforcement of this requirement specifically to educate surveyors and providers. In a 2017 memorandum, CMS stated that it will use the 18-month moratorium period to educate surveyors and providers to ensure they understand the health and safety expectations um, that will be evaluated. So what was the purpose of CMS's moratorium if not to ensure that surveyors and providers learn the, so, the not-so-challenging distinction that extending a PRN antipsychotic prescription requires 
an evaluation, whereas PRN orders for other psychotropic drugs do not. Given the ongoing and widespread misuse of antipsychotic drugs, as we just highlighted, we are shocked and troubled by CMS's proposal to make it easier for facilities to drug residents with these potentially fatal medications. Rather, CMS should advance regulatory changes that strengthen resident protections around antipsychotic drugging, such as written informed consent prior to administration of these drugs. Next slide, please. So under the current regulation, facilities are required to designate an individual to serve as the Director of Food and Nutrition Services if there's no qualified dietitian or other clinically qualified nutrition professional working full-time. The designee must be a certified dietary or food service manager or have a similar national certification or at least an associate's degree in food service management or hospitality. The designee has five years to obtain the necessary credential if she or he served in that role before November 28, 2016 or within one year. CMS is now proposing to allow facilities to designate someone who has either two or more years of experience or has completed a minimum course of study in food safety to serve as the Director of Food and Nutrition. The 2016 final rule actually addressed commenters who said there are many capable uh, professionals with many years of food service experience without specific credentials who may nonetheless be competent within a long-term care environment. CMS's response was that effective management and oversight of the food and nutrition services is critical to the safety and well-being of all residents of a nursing facility. Therefore, it is important that there are standards for individuals who lead this service. CMS did acknowledge that, quote, there are many highly capable professionals with many years of food service experience without specific credentials who may nonetheless be highly competent within a long-term care environment. However, CMS explained that this is why the agency was giving time for those currently serving in these roles to meet the requirements. CMS has provided no meaningful explanation for why it is reversing its own policy now. What we do know is that poor management of food and nutrition services continues to be dangerous, especially to an already vulnerable population. Too many residents already suffer from malnourishment, this is which leads to negative health outcomes. In addition, the quality and safety of resident food services are longstanding concerns. Um, and with that, I will turn it back over to Richard, who will be talking about facility-wide assessments. Great. Thank you, Jara. And thanks for remembering where the cutoff was, because I kind of forgot when we were switching <laughs> over. Um, so. Um, the, the next issue that we're going to address here, and again, these are all the change, all, all areas of the current regulations that the administration has proposed making a change to, just to reiterate that. Um, so here we're talking about facility-wide assessments, and nursing homes are now required to have to conduct a uh, an assessment of their needs for day-to-day -day operations and for uh, potential emergencies at least once a year. And this responds to a couple of things. One, it responds to uh, long-standing issues with providing care, uh, the fact that most nursing homes in our country don't have sufficient staff to meet the needs of their residents, and also 
um, issues that we've seen in recent years with uh, from Hurricane Katrina to Hurricane Sandy um, to the more recent hurricanes where residents in Texas and in New York and New Jersey uh, and Florida and uh, Louisiana were harmed and many died um, and it was likely highly unnecessary to have um, that suffering and those deaths as a result of uh, either poor planning or that the plans were not uh, implementable by the facility staff, etc. So it's for those reasons that CMS, you know, came up with this rule, and it's something that we have, uh, we have as a society, not just LTCCC, have focused on is, you know, what are you doing? How are you considering what your staffing needs are? How are you considering what your other needs are? How are you considering how to deal with emergencies? What CMS is proposing is that rather than, than require facilities to do this um, every year, that facilities can do this every two years. Uh, and they also proposed some changes, which I didn't include here, in regard to the um, the use of data and how this is implemented in the uh, in the facilities practice and how the facility looks at other issues, such as quality improvement, which we'll talk about in in the forthcoming slide, uh, and looks at its staffing, etc. So we are very concerned. Our position, uh, as I think is obvious that we think that at least once a year, facilities should be looking to see, well, what's going on? Um, how, how is my staffing? How is the um, care being provided? What is, you know, what is going on in my facility and how am I meeting those needs? What do I need to do to meet those needs better? And also considering what's going on. We've seen changes with, the, um, you know, with, with global warming. We're seeing changes uh, with increasing uh, storms. Uh, increasing ferocity of storms, uh, heat waves, etc. What uh, does my facility need to do? This is not something that you know. You know, this again is part of CMS's effort to reduce provider burden. But no one says a facility has to spend a month or dedicate a team of six to do this. But it should be, and I think we have a right to expect that facilities are going to. Um, assign the people necessary and take whatever time it is necessary, whether it be an hour or whether it be, you know, um, a couple of days or, you know, meetings over over many days to figure out what is going on what they, and what they need to be doing moving forward. Um, now, I mentioned QAPI a couple of times. This is the Quality Assurance and Performance Improvement. That's what QAPI stands for. It's a requirement that came about in the 2010 Affordable Care Act. And essentially what it says is that every facility has to have a, um, a QAPI program. And the QAPI program is, again, in the last slide we talked about doing a facility assessment. The QAPI program is different in that it assigns specific people to be identifying any issues that are going on in the facility in regard to um, you know, problems with resident care, problems with resident quality of life, uh, staffing issues, it could be staffing retention issues, et cetera, and working to address those problems. Why is this valuable? Because we see so often, I mean, in our country, the average rate of nursing home violations is seven per year. Uh, last time we looked in 2017, 43% of nursing homes have what we call chronic deficiencies, meaning they were cited for the same regulatory requirement three times in the last three years on nursing home compare. So we have a problem of 
long-standing issues with having sufficient staff, not all nursing homes, but frankly the majority of nursing homes. Um, most nursing homes having multiple deficiencies, healthcare deficiencies every single year, and almost half of nursing homes having repeat citations for the same regulatory requirement year after year after year. So a way of getting at this was to require facilities to say, hey, we're expecting you to implement a system internally to identify these issues and to address them in a very specific, <coughs> excuse me, and meaningful way. So the, uh, as you note here, as I note here, excuse me, under the current rule, it requires a governing body of people who are responsible uh, and accountable for the copy program. This is not just something that's thrown off on a, um, on a care staff person or administrative person who does not have responsibility. Um, the committee has to include at least the director of nursing, uh, medical director or his or her designee, the infection control and prevention officer, and at least three members of the facility staff, at least one of whom must be the administrator, the owner, or a board member or other individual in a leadership role. So see, the rule is really getting at connecting with people who are responsible uh, for care, uh, getting at people who are responsible for quality control, such as infection control and prevention, and getting at people who have a, um, who are connected, who are or are connected to the highest levels of ownership or administration. In addition, as I know here in the numbers in the, in the middle, one, two, three, four, the COPY program must, according to CMS, address all systems of care and management practices, include, excuse me, clinical care, quality of life, and resident choice utilize the best available evidence to define and measure indicators of quality and facility goals that reflect processes of care and facility operations that have been shown to be predictive of desired outcomes for residents. So we're really connecting it here to what the facility operations are to the desired outcomes for residents. And lastly, it should reflect the complexities, the unique care and the services that the facility provides. CMS is, in short, eliminating one through four entirely. So they're leaving it up to the um, to the copy to the to the membership and to the facility to decide how it's going to go about doing it. They said that they did this to reduce provider burden; that it was too prescriptive. And our response is <clears throat> essentially: if you look at the at these numbers, yes, they talk about specific ideas. They talk about specific expectations, but they don't talk about specific things that a facility has to do. That when, when I think about it, at least, and I hope when you think about it as well, is that you consider that when you, when you are doing an assessment, if you are recognized that you have problems, that you're looking at the systems of care, you're looking at the management of those systems, you're looking at clinical care, quality of life, resident choice, etc. So it's really getting at we want this to be meaningful. We want this to be comprehensive. We want this to address what is actually going on in your facility. And our concern is that if those things are removed, that that doesn't really give any requirements for what the QAPI program has to do. And then the initial goal of this to address longstanding concerns won't be met. And we'll still see more and more of, of the same problems repeating themselves. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, next, compliance and ethics. So a, right now, a nursing home is required to have a compliance and ethics program um, with an officer 
and a, um, and a and standards and policies and procedures that are uh, there to ensure that violations, including resident abuse, resident neglect, crimes against residents are identified quickly and appropriately and addressed and reported to the appropriate people. This has been a ongoing problem for many more years than I've been around, is that we have persistent abuse and neglect. Again, not every nursing home, but in far, far, far too many nursing homes um, that residents are, are experience abuse, residents experience neglect, there is a significant degree of crimes against residents, whether that be theft or sexual abuse or, um, or other kinds of abuse, hitting, smacking, things that we would never accept in, in a public space. For some reason, we accept in a nursing home. Uh, but in fact, residents in nursing homes have the same rights um, when it comes to freedom from crime, freedom from abuse, etc., as anyone uh, who lives in our country does. So the whole point of this was of the compliance and ethics was again to get at it. What is the facility doing to address these problems? Maybe there are no problems. Maybe there are very few, and that wouldn't be a big burden at all. But um, too many facilities, again, we've, we've seen sexual abuse of thousands of people across the country, nursing homes, thousands of nursing home residents across the country, according to a CNN report a couple of years ago. We know that there is a tremendous amount of so-called loss, but things are misplaced, things are stolen, um, of drugs being um, diverted from residents, and of course of, of resident abuse and neglect. It's so important that um, the facilities take some concrete steps to do something about this, that it, it's hard for me personally to, to understate this. I mean, it doesn't sound like compliance and ethics, what does that mean? It sounds kind of kind of vague. But really, this is, we want you as a nursing home, as a professional caregiver, providing 24-hour a day skilled care to a very vulnerable population to say, you know what, I'm looking out to see, to make sure that they are receiving the appropriate care and that if there are violations uh, of someone's civil rights or someone, someone's a victim of a crime, that we are doing something about it. Uh, so, of course, we're very concerned about this. And we think that the, that the current rules should be maintained. Uh, this is one of our last slides. I'm going to leave some time for, uh, hopefully, for questions, or, or we'll stick around for questions for a bit. Uh, but this is also very concerning to me. There are some issues that we're seeing going on in terms of reduction of, uh, of facility accountability uh, and proposals out there to reduce the, um, the extent to which nursing homes are held accountable through surveys, and when they are found to, to violate a resident's rights in a significant way, to be penalized for that. So we've seen that happen already. The Trump administration has imposed other things to reduce other um, policies to reduce facility fines. But this seems to me to be, uh, in a way, particularly egregious, is that right now, if a nursing home faces, you know, is, is cited, and generally you're only, it, excuse me, generally you have to be cited as causing resident harm or immediate jeopardy in order for there to be any chance that any penalty is, is imposed against you as a nursing home. 96% approximately of all healthcare deficiencies are identified as causing no resident harm or immediate jeopardy whatsoever. And that means that it's 
extremely unlikely that any of those citations will result in a fine. So the, for the few that result in a fine, a facility still then has additional things that it could do. It could appeal the fine or it can go to uh, one of two forms of informal dispute resolution that I won't get into here. Right now, if it, and for many years, if a facility says we're not going to appeal, we waive our right to appeal, they get a 35% discount on that fine. So if the fine was, say, $1,000, they get reduced to $650 just by saying we're going to waive our right to appeal. We're not going to appeal. We'll pay the fine. Well, what CMS is saying is that they shouldn't even have to take the step of waiving their right to appeal, that they should be given an automatic 35% discount. And what I hear is we're giving you an automatic 35% discount. So in the very, very, very small number of cases in which a facility actually faces a monetary penalty, a fine, that automatically that is going to be discounted by 35%. And I, I think that sends a really poor message to to families, to residents, and to the industry. It says that, you know what, if the fine would have been $10,000 for whatever you were doing, actually it's only going to be $6,500. So if you're a company and you're more concerned about your profits and losses, does it make sense to hire someone additional or does it, is it um, more cost-effective for you to just pay a fine that is now going to be reduced automatically by 35%? I'm going to talk very quickly about some of the um, plans that we have and that you can do to speak out about some of these issues if you choose to. Um, now this is the website www.regulations.gov. The comment period for this, now every single proposed regulation has to go for, uh, for public comment. So here is a, is a snapshot of the page. You can, as you see, it's just a button. You just go to the page and you click comment now. Anyone can comment. A comment can be any length whatsoever. It could be a single sentence. I think that you should maintain the uh, compliance and ethics requirement as it exists because I'm very concerned about the, um, the safety of residents um, if, if, that, if that was to be taken away. Or you can add your personal story, which of course always helps. But it could be one sentence, or you can do as we're going to do, is that we're going to be commenting on all these, these regulations about which we're concerned. Um, so you can do that. If you go to regulations.gov, I search, as you can see here, nursing homes. This is one of many, many that came up. Or you can just put in, and I wrote it here, CMS-2019-0105. That's the docket number for this regulation, and you'll get this page right away. And then you just press comment now. You can read other people's comments. All comments are, are available to the public. Uh, we are also going to be this, the slides are now for this program are now on our website. We're going to be doing um, some fact sheets around this as well on the specific issues that we just discussed to help people with their advocacy. Uh, and you could use anything you've heard here, any of the materials in the comments, any of our fact sheets, which will be out by the end of this month, uh, in your own comments. Feel free to just copy and paste or adapt in any way you like. Um, the comments for this are due by September 16th at 5 p.m. Eastern uh, on the website. After that, it'll close down. But it's really, really easy to do. Um, here is our website, our Action Center. I just pointed at a couple of things. Please, if you're able to, uh, tell your story about nursing home care. 
bad or good. We want to hear about it. We want to hear about good nursing homes that are doing a good job for their residents. And we want to hear about the problems that you're facing. It doesn't have to be a huge problem. Some of these things could be, you know, people think, oh, it's, it's not a big deal. Nobody died. But, but, you know, we want to hear about quality of life. We want to hear about people whose call bell wasn't answered uh, and how that felt and what that meant to them. Because this helps us support uh, our advocacy. It helps put a face for policymakers and for regulators as to what's going on. Also, in the last hour here, you could sign up for LTC News and Updates. So if you're interested in getting updates from us about what's going on, uh, please do sign up. I'll go onto that slide in a second. You can see it uh, in a larger format. Uh, our next program is actually going to be focused on New York State. We just did two studies on New York State. That'll be September 17th. And then we'll be back in October with another program for everyone. But of course, everyone is well, is, is open and welcome to join our program September 17th. Uh, but if you want to sign up for alerts, nearsignal411.org forward slash join. We don't share or sell our list with anybody, but uh, if you want to get alerts about what's going on, if you want to get alerts when those fact sheets are up, etc., please do um, join us. You could also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter, and there's our website. And again, for people in New York State, for uh, ombudsmen and family members, uh, we urge you to connect with the Alliance of New York Family Councils uh, at www.anyfc.org. And for the ombudsman in New York State, if you take the survey, we will let your supervisor know. And for ombudsman programs in other states, if you want us to do the same for you, just let us know. We would be happy to do that And uh, if you would like these programs to be useful for an in-service training. Uh, and then I'm going to open it up for questions. Sarah, if you have any, are there any questions from people? Otherwise, if you have a question, please press star six. There is one question. Okay. When we leave comments, should we identify as a long-term care ombudsman, for example? Uh, that's entirely up to you. I've seen comments that are, they can be anonymous. They can have um, your name. Or um, you, know, you can you can say what you're interested in, whether it be as an ombudsman or as a family member or as a resident, as an attorney, um, as uh, you know someone who worked. We saw I saw one today that was from someone who who works for the uh, nursing home industry who used to work for one of the states. So um, she put in a lot of information, obviously, about her background. But it's whatever you want to do. Uh, are there any questions from the audience? If so, please press star six. Uh, and we also appreciate and welcome your comments or questions. Uh, unfortunately, we're not equipped to handle you know specific individual cases, but we really do want to hear uh, any comments you have or, or ideas for future programs. You can email us at info at ltccc.org. Uh, this program will be available on our website, uh, on our YouTube channel, as a recording later this week. And again, it will also be a podcast available on our website. And I hope in the next couple of weeks, uh, we'll be linked into iTunes and to Google Play, etc. So thank you all for joining us on a, a summer afternoon. I appreciate it. And we'll see you either for our September program or our October program. Have a good afternoon.